Okay, so Patrick, this week, Chief Newsham, we landed our first, what would you call this, high-profile celebrity interview? I would say high-profile interview. I'm not sure he's a celebrity, but high-profile. I don't think he would call himself a celebrity. Okay, that's true. Um, So, obviously, we cover a lot. Policing in 2018, we talk ATVs, we talk uh, guns in school, which I thought was a highlight. We talk opioids, we talk uh, the crack uh, epidemic. In the in the early '90s, and how DC, how was the police in DC back then? We talked uh, guns in schools, uh, keeping the schools safe. We, you know, we talked about a lot of different things. It was a wide ranging uh, interview. So here we go. Here's our interview with Chief Newsham. Enjoy. Um, so Chief Newsham, we want you know Patrick has a podcast at Fox Five. I, I know you have a radio show and podcast. How's that going, by the way? Our radio show, I think it's going very well. Dustin is becoming uh, quite a celebrity out there uh, as, as the show's host. So we're very excited about it. So we wanted to chat with you um, in, about policing in D.C., um, some of the changes, some of the challenges that you've had. And, um, you know, Patrick and I on our podcast, Patrick, we talk a lot about whether it's ATV incidents you have to deal with or gun violence in the district. So, Patrick, where do you want to start? I guess what we'll start is... Um a little bit of your background, and then we'll go from there. So I actually was looking up your bio. I didn't realize uh, you're probably the smartest person in the room here with a law degree from Maryland. Yeah, uh, I, I don't hold it against me, but I do have a, a law degree from the University of Maryland. I'm a member of the D.C. and the Maryland Bar. Uh, the reason I got, my, I got my law degree after I became a police officer a little bit later in life, the reason that I did it was it was something I always wanted to do. Um, one of the, the biggest benefits I got from it, there's a lot of benefits from furthering your education, but uh, when I talk to folks uh, on the police department who are uh, future MPD leaders, uh, I always encourage them to, uh, to go and further their education. And, you know, a lot of times they'll say, well, I'm busy, you know, I can't do it. I've got all these things going on at home. I got, you know, this is a very demanding job. And I said, uh, when I went to law school, I had uh, small children at home. Uh, my wife at the time was a flight attendant who would leave for three or four days a week, uh, and I was working as a police officer here in the district, and I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree. <laughs> so if, if I was able to do it, I tell them, I said, you can do it too. And so how's it, how, is that, how, how has the degree helped you with your policing and, and throughout your career? I, um, you know, I talk to a lot of people in the criminal justice system, so to, to have an understanding of the law is extremely helpful. You know, I talk to judges, I talk yeah. to prosecutors, and to... To have that understanding has been very valuable to me. That's great. That's great. So I noticed uh, Holy Cross Worcester. So I'm actually a little familiar. My daughter went to Clark University. So did my sister. My oh, sister great. went to Clark. Yeah. So Holy Cross to... So you joined the force in 1989. I see. Almost 30 years. I did, yes. So one of the things Sarah and I were talking about, and this one of the reasons that we wanted to have this interview is we talk about policing a lot and different things. How has it changed in 30 years? I mean, how... I mean, no, that's a wide-ranging question, but it, how? yeah, it's it's changed so dramatically. And one of the um, one of the things in policing is it's really hard to kind of keep up with the changes that you see. Uh, you know, I can talk about this department in particular. Uh, when I joined the police department back in 1989, uh, crime in the district was at a, in a very bad place. Um, we had as many as 489 homicides. One of the first years that I was here, close to 500 homicides. Uh, we were dealing with a crack epidemic like many other majors. Was that, was that across the country or is that more? It was across the country. Okay. But, but being here in the district, this is one of the major cities that was, was having this problem. 
And, um, you know, we were very under-resourced as a police police department. And, you know, you saw what happened. We went through uh, this hiring spurt where the police department probably hired some people they should not have hired. As a result, we had a bunch of police officers that were getting arrested for some very serious crimes. You remember the Dirty Dozen and those kinds of things. Uh, And then we went through a transition. Uh, In 1999, uh, the Washington Post did a series of articles about the Metropolitan Police Department and excessive use of force, and it painted a very unflattering picture uh, of our agency. And I got to tell you, uh, it was it was embarrassing uh, to wear this mm-hmm. uniform. It really was embarrassing to be a, a member of this agency. So we got a new chief of police. There was a control board that was brought in here in the city. They hired a guy by the name of Charles Ramsey. He came in. He asked the Department of Justice to take a look at the police department. Uh, justice came in, did a two-year investigation, determined that we had a pattern and a practice of using excessive force. Talk about embarrassing. And then we went through an eight-year period where we implemented what was called a memorandum of agreement, where we changed everything regarding our uses of force. We, uh, the way we investigated, uh, the the force that we used, um, you know, uh, outreach to the community, uh, everything from uh, hand controls to pepper spray to ASP to our service weapons, everything was was evaluated. We went through this transition, like I said, over about an eight-year period. And when we came out of it, uh, the number and the use of force that we had was reduced significantly. Yeah, And we really transitioned, in my opinion, from being an apart- a department that, uh, frankly, I was embarrassed to be a member of, to being a, a department that I'm very proud That's of. That's great. So Chief Ramsey, he promoted you to commander, I believe, in what, 2000 it was? It was. Yeah, so I actually had... Um, the privilege of working with Chief Ramsey up in Phil- so I was the general manager in Philadelphia when he was oh, uh, uh, it wasn't chief then I think it was commissioner commissioner right, right. and uh, so we actually worked together uh, I was a board member of the Police Athletic League so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that so are you familiar with that organization I am yeah. so they have uh, real quick so in Philadelphia there's uh, centers youth centers that are have a full time Philly PD officer housed at that facility. It's a hundred percent through the fundraising. Is there something similar in the district or if not, should there be? We have, um, we do so many things with our young people here in the city. You know, we have our school resource officers. Uh, we have an expeditioner program. Uh, we have a program over at Anacostia High, the public safety Academy where we're, we're bringing kids up, uh, in the high school age that, that may want to become future, become police officers. Uh, we have a cadet, uh, program. Uh, we have our Beat the Streets initiative uh, that we do out there in the community. So, you know, we do all these things, and, and it's really interesting that you ask that question because I've been to a bunch of meetings since I've been the chief in communities all over the city. And the number one question that they always ask me is they're always asking me, well, what are you doing with the young people in the city? And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what they will continue, when we, after I answer, I tell them all the things we're doing, they're always like, well, what happened to Officer Friendly? Mm-hmm. Really, that was the number one question that I get. And I don't know if you know this or not, but two weeks ago, uh, we re-implemented the Officer Friendly program. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that. What did- so we go into all of the, uh, we, we started with uh, seven elementary schools this, uh, this school year. So we're going to go into seven this year. And it's an education-based program where we teach kids about bullying, uh, proper use of social media, 
uh, trying to stay out of trouble, so just being safe uh, in their community, um, talking to an, an adult um, or a guardian when something is untoward or something bad is happening. Um, the most important part about the officer-friendly program is we go in and we, we meet kids at a very young age and we start to develop a relationship between the kids and the police. And um, with it, so we go and we do these programs, different teaching lessons with them. Uh, this is in a coordination and cooperation with DCPS. And then at the end of the day, we have an assembly with all the kids and we've instituted what's called our side-by-side band. And the band comes in and actually plays music. And and I got to tell you, I, I saw the band uh, when they broke out. They were talking about, you know, because we had to plan this for a while and they were practicing and all these things. And I went, they're, they're actually very good. <laughs> they're a very good band. So yeah, I was great. very impressed. Um, you mentioned the crack epidemic. How different is that, or is it similar, or are you as concerned with the opioid epidemic that's going on right now? Is there similarities, or or it? You know, the opioid ep- epidemic is is, uh, in my opinion, uh, very different uh, than the crack epidemic. We saw a lot of violence associated with the crack epidemic, and the violence uh, was a lot of times it was between. Uh, groups uh, and that had territories that they established, and then you would have fights between the groups, and it was extremely violent behavior, and the homicide totals went up. Uh, the opioid epidemic is a situation where people have become addicted uh, to opioids, and the drug is killing them. Uh, so it's still it's just as significant, but it, it's a much different problem. It's more of a public health problem. Uh, you see that the people who are becoming addicted to opioids, largely it's a circumstance where they start off with painkillers, so they go in with different injuries, right. or they have a family member uh, right. who's left painkillers in, in a medicine cabinet. They become addicted to the painkillers, and then they will transition to the heroin, which was, is cheaper and easier to buy. But it's not necessarily translating to the violence that you saw back in the crack epidemic. It, it's, it's definitely not translating to the violence. Um, one of the things that we wanted to ask you about was um, you were talking about excessive force. And then every couple of months, especially in the summertime, you guys are sort of going viral with ATV dirt bike incidents um, on the roads. You guys have a policy of not chasing them. Um, but when these videos come out, I mean, quite honestly, sometimes they look fairly destructive to the community, but the police are just sort of setting up a barricade and not, it it appears as though they're not really taking a lot of action. So can you talk to us about what that policy is? I'm sure you get lots of positive and negative feedback on both sides with that. And, you know, what you think in general of ATVs and dirt bikes in the streets? Yeah, so so people are very, very frustrated by this behavior. It's very uh, angering and it's very disturbing. It's essentially... And, and these aren't kids that are driving these ATVs and these dirt bikes on our city streets. These, these are grown men. They're adults. And I, I got to tell you, people get very angry, and they really want the police to do something about it. And so what we have done, uh, and we, we're not going to chase these because we're not going to contribute or exacerbate an already dangerous problem by chasing um, these guys around. But what we do do is we get our helicopter up and we send out what's called our electronic surveillance unit. And we get very good photo images of the people that are involved in this behavior. Yeah, we put the images out. And the community has been, I got to tell you, very good at giving us information back as to who these people are. We apply for restaurant warrants and we prosecute them that way. 
Because it is illegal to drive them, correct? Absolutely illegal to drive them on the district streets. Um, you know, a lot of times the behavior, like I said, they're not wearing helmets. It's extremely dangerous behavior. You have uh, family members. You have elderly folks, our seniors that are out there. You have kids that are out there on the streets. And these things are zipping in and out of traffic up on the sidewalk. Especially in the summer, like Sarah mentioned. Right. Like oh, yeah. It's, it's, and so the, the good news is since we started putting these images out and holding some of these guys accountable, uh, the numbers in the groups in, in the district have actually reduced. You used to see rides where there would be 60, 70. Right. Sure. Now we're seeing much smaller groups. So what that says to me is that I think that uh, some of the people that were involved in this behavior have been prosecuted and have stopped. I think uh, what's more likely, because the penalties are not that significant, but I think what's more likely is I think a lot of them have kind of realized that this really isn't the type of thing they should be doing in the community. I think it's been stigmatized by enough people where they're saying, you know, I'm not going to be involved in that juvenile behavior because it's creating such a ruckus in my community. And then for the, the few that remain, we're going to keep at it. I mean, we take it very, very seriously, uh, and we're going to make sure that we continue to, to until it completely stops. I wanted to ask you about another policy change, which I actually um, I tweeted at that I applauded, um, was the not being allowed to shoot out of a vehicle or at a moving vehicle from a moving vehicle. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that was part of a, a thought process on some of the new tactics being used by potential terrorists around the country and in Europe and so forth, where they're driving cars into crowded. So, like, so when you make a pop, first, you know, tell us about that change. And then like, is that, do you do a study for that? Is that just, does that come out of like, you know, talking to other jurisdictions and other you know, leaders around the country? How, does, how do you evolve to where you change back that policy? So you, you, what, the way you do it is you actually talk to other police executives. And there's, you know, this problem arises. And, you know, we had over in Europe, I want to say in a 13-month period, 125 people that were killed by vehicle attacks and like 600-some people were injured. Then you uh, go back to October, we had, I want to say it was... 10 or 11 people um, that were injured up in New York City, and the number of people were killed. That was on the bike path, I believe. Exactly. And so you're starting to see these vehicle attacks, um, and they're becoming in- increasingly uh, more prevalent around the world. And then you start to see them happen here in the United States. And you say, listen, in those very narrow circumstances, the police need to be able to stop the behavior to preserve human life. Uh, the police department doesn't ever want to have to be involved in the taking of a life. But when you have somebody who's behind a vehicle like that, um, in that very narrow circumstance, you've got to give the officers the opportunity to be able to do something. Mm-hmm. So that's why, And that's why you've got to be careful that you tailor uh, your policy to that specific instance. Yeah. And I, we have a woman over here, uh, our director uh, of policy by the name of uh, Maureen O'Connell. She did a really uh, excellent job of crafting that that policy and That's the officers great. get it you know we the the reason you don't want police officers shooting at vehicles generally for example if a car is headed towards an officer is because Shooting at a, a car that's coming towards an officer is not going to stop that, that car. From so it's not like all the TV shows we watch where that's all they do for the full 45 minutes of the show. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's not Blue Bloods better. No. It's, yeah, I base all my uh, policing on Blue Bloods. Uh, blue Bloods. <laughs> a lot of people do, which makes our job a little bit more difficult. I but. bet. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, you know, you got to give the, the – 
police officers the ability the ability to stop that kind of a threat. So that was the idea. So being in, in the nation's capital, you know, I, I you know we did a story a few weeks ago, twenty one million I believe visitors that broke a record. How you know your I assume the size of your forest is based on the size of the residents or the amount of you know the the seven hundred thousand plus residents that you. How do you plan and police for twenty one million visitors? I mean, is that does that just create havoc on your? Uh, now, you know, this this is a big city, and, and, you know, our population here in the district over the last 10 years has actually increased by almost 100,000. Uh, and we do have, we're increasingly getting more and more uh, visitors into our city, uh, but we're becoming more efficient uh, as a police agency, too, so we can handle these kinds of things. Um, 3,800 police officers is a lot of police officers, and then you have to remember that we also have a lot of federal agencies that work here in the district and metro i mean um, you have park, park police you have a lot of police you have capitol hill police um so i mean and then you have a lot of private uh, security agencies so we have a lot of resources that we can tap into and and i gotta tell you working in washington dc when i talk to some of the police executives around the country they're, they're really envious of the relationships that we have with the federal partners and with some of our local partners to be able to do different things in our city. Give you an example. Uh, just last night, we had a viewing party uh, for the Capitals game. And those are the things that happen in a big city. And you got to make sure that you have appropriate police resources. I People ask me all the time how many police officers we need here in the district. I feel very comfortable uh, being able to manage the city with this, the number of police with that officers number. we have. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when when you're when you're crafting various policies and and looking at how to deploy certain uh, resources and so forth, do you, like you said, you talked to a lot of other jurisdictions in in this day and age of policing. How active is the communication between you and other chiefs, like in Philadelphia and and, and New York and um, Richmond and and so forth? Are you are you constantly talking to them and like? best practices and and so forth we, we, we are so there's a number of uh, police organizations uh where the chiefs will get together you know you have the police executive research forum you have major city chiefs uh i just went uh recently to a conference up in boston and it had police leaders from all over uh the world uh, that sat in uh and really those things i can't tell you how valuable uh those things can be uh, new york city was there chicago was there they had, they had a rough weekend in Chicago. And, you know, to, to listen to the things, the type of things that they're dealing with in Chicago, uh, we, we can learn from the best practices there. And, and they learn from us, too. We were actually able to give a presentation uh, at that conference about something we're doing here in Washington, D.C. And there were a number of cities that came up to uh, me and Matt, who gave the presentation, uh, afterwards and wanted to learn more about what we're doing here in Washington, D.C. And that's really how you get better. I talked about this at the beginning, how policing is changing, and yeah. you, you have to be able to change with it. And, and part of that's listening to your colleagues. Um, can you talk to us, too? You know, obviously we're in the media, but over the past couple of years, we've seen an excessive amount of what appears to be um, police, you know, Black Lives Matter, that whole movement. It seems like extreme excessive force against minorities. I know you do a lot, like you were talking about, for the youth. Um, what are you doing to address race issues within the police force and then when they're out on the street? Yeah, that's a, that's a you know that's a great question. It's going to take probably the answer is going to be a lot longer than you would like. But uh, I'll talk a little bit about uh, use of force uh, by the Metropolitan Police Department because I think that 
when we see the images that we see that are being broadcast nationally, people have a tendency to attribute that to all police. So just real quickly, um, you know, in we we make about over 30,000 arrests a year in, here in the District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those 30,000 arrests, we use force uh, about 3% of the time. So in 97%... Real quick, what's considered force? Like Force is anything from hand controls to use of the service weapon. So in 97% of the times that the Metropolitan Police Department makes an arrest, it's made with no force whatsoever. Uh, of the 900 cases where force is used in a year, it's about a 900 is about the number. 3% of those 900 or 40 is um, serious use of force. And serious use of force would be use of the ASP, uh, use of the taser, or use of the firearm. So it's 3%, I mean, 4% of 3%, which is a very small number, is a situation. 40, 40, 40 exactly. instances. It's about 40 instances where we're, we, we use serious force. And now, I say all that to say so people can have some sense is that when you're seeing these things that are happening in other communities, uh, you can't attribute that to all police officers. Right. It's a very uh, unique service. With all that being said, uh, whenever uh, the government has to take a life, uh, it's a very serious matter. So so for, for groups that are out there and advocating uh, against that type of behavior, I'm 100% supportive of that. When we see some of the images as police officers that we've seen across the country, we're just as disgusted as anybody else. And we don't want to see police involved in that behavior. The only thing I would say is please don't attribute that to all of our police because most of the men and women uh, that work in this profession, very uh, well-minded, good people that are doing the right thing. And so when you attribute them, it, to some degree, it, it discourages them from doing, doing right. that. Do, do you have, um, obviously, we've had some school shootings recently, and unfortunately, they've they've in. I don't want to say they've increased. I don't know the specific stats, but they've certainly become um, what they seem to be more frequent and, and certainly more violent. Um, from a D.C. school perspective, I mean, do you have any specific opinions on how to handle that, school safety, gun control? Or, or In the district, we're in a pretty good place. Um, I mean, we're right now, uh, we're tweaking the way that we are uh, going to be handling our schools probably going to, into the next school year we will have a different policy that we will introduce probably in August about how we're going to address security at our schools but we have anything you want to share now or? Uh, we're, we, we'll, we don't want to ruin the surprise but we have about a, I had to ask you that was the, I said I wasn't a journalist but uh, we have about a hundred officers right now uh, that are school resource officers that are assigned to the, the schools that we have. We also have about 300, little over 300 uh, private security guards that are assigned to the school. In most of the high schools that we have in the District of Columbia, there's a weapons abatement. So that means when, when people come to school, uh, they have to go through um, uh, uh, either a wanding or they go through a machine, to, as, which is a metal detector, to see if a weapon is there. And then, you know, the bad news is, five, six, seven times a year, we recover a firearm before it gets introduced into the school. So, uh, and the, the other part is, you know, do you... All, do all the schools have metal detectors? They don't all have them. But, they don't but, all. So we have to evaluate uh, the likelihood of an, of an instance. So we look at crime reports and things that are going on around the school to deter... And then... 
DC yeah. because you're worried about just general crime at schools in addition to something exactly. where somebody's coming in to do real harm. Well, the other thing too is is the DCPS and the charter schools will weigh in whether or not they want to have the, the weapons abatement. We always urge it, particularly at our high schools, but at the end of the day, they make the decision as to whether or not uh, they want to have it. So the, the other part about the district which people need to understand is because people will say, you know, we need a, a police officer in every single school. And in the District of Columbia, that may not be as necessary as it might be in some other jurisdictions. If you look at Parkland, Florida, for example, uh, Parkland, Florida is, an, and I don't know if I have these numbers exactly right, but this is close, is about 1,600 square miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the District of Columbia is 67 square miles. Parkland, Florida, I want to say, has 2,300 uh, deputies in the Sheriff's Department. Uh, we have 3,800 police officers in the district, pl- plus all of the other federal agencies uh, that we have. So if there is an incident at, at the school, our ability to s- respond with appropriate resources is would be right. very, very quick. And you can see... Uh, when we had the um, the mass shooting over at the Navy Yard, you saw how quickly all of those police resources descended on that. Uh, if we had a school shoot, shooting in, um, in the district, it would be very similar because we're such geographically such a small place. So you've been chief almost a year or a little over a year. Uh, is it what you expected? Uh, you know, I have to say it's 100% what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I uh, was... <laughs> good, good, bad, or whatever. I, I had been an assistant chief uh, for a very long time, and I worked very closely with the two previous chiefs, uh, Chief Ramsey and Chief Lanier, and I had a lot of insight into what their job entailed. Uh, so I really, um, I'm not surprised... Uh, by the work at all. Uh, I'm very happy to do the work. Um, you know, there's nothing more rewarding uh, than, to, than to be uh, able to sit in this seat and to work with the people that I work with. I mean, if you could see the amount of work uh, that the men and women of this agency do to try and keep this city safe, you, you would have a, a, a new admiration for these people. Are, uh, are, 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 do, do people want to become police officers? I think that... Um, I think that we still, fortunately, have a lot of good young people that are interested in becoming the police. I, I, I will I'll, I'll couch that with saying that I do think that some of our young people are being discouraged from becoming police officers. And whenever I talk to people, particularly who are in our, uh, you know, in our colleges and our universities, professors. Uh, that are teaching our young people. I said, you know, do you ever consider talking about the police profession with some of these people? Uh, This is a service profession where we go and we help people. And we're really, you know, traditional policing of, you know, chasing the bad guy, blowing things up and shooting and chasing like we were talking about. That's not what we do in policing. It's really not. You know, you talk about 97% of the arrests we made are made with no force whatsoever. Really what we do, the large portion of what we do in policing uh, is helping people you know we come to car accident scenes we're helping to find missing persons uh, we're giving directions uh, we're talking to people and making them feel safe we're doing the things we do with the community in the side-by-side band Um, to make an arrest is something we do very infrequently is there something frustrating you or something that you think can make 
the, the you know policing the community either easier or clean up something that if you had a magic wand you could you know you could in the do district it. I really feel very strongly we have very good gun laws here in the District of Columbia but I don't think that the consequences uh, are as significant as they should be I really think um, we need to say uh, as a community as a criminal justice system that if you're out there in your possession you're possessing an illegal firearm uh, the consequences need to be severe. Are, are they just not? Be, are they not being prosecuted? Is it is it a time money issue? Is I it- think that at the end of the day, um, when it goes through the process, and I think when the the sentences are being handled handed out, they're they're not significant enough to change behavior. And I think that you you have a real kind of like texting and driving. I think you have a real opportunity to change behavior with with the gun. And the thing with the guns is, and this is what I you're going to hear me say it a thousand times is that, um, you know, this past weekend we lost a guy who's a, a, a guy who owns a local business uh, here in the District of Columbia, Alexander Mosby, uh, beloved by everybody in the community. Uh, his wife uh, no longer has a husband. His children no longer have a father. And the reason that he died is because somebody decided uh, they could have an illegal farm in our community and use it. And... If we don't start to take it seriously and make sure that there are serious consequences for that behavior, uh, the violence is going to continue. I just have one last question for you. You know, you've talked so much about police evolution. What are you doing for your officers as far as, like, you all do have so much stress, you know, whether it's from the media and then, you know, you... Oh, you guys are no stress at all. (laughs) come on. Don't you love tuning into the news? Um, But what are you doing, like, mental health-wise or therapy? Because Patrick and I both have relatives that are police officers. Mine happen to be in Maine. But, you know, there's never really any therapy for them. or You know, because they're going into domestic incidents every day. It has to be overwhelmingly discouraging you know what how is that part of it the mental health changed so there's a couple things we have an employee assistance uh, program so if we have an officer that's involved in a a seriously critical incident which could result in trauma uh, they're required to go through uh, through a program with our eap but the eap is also available uh, if managers feel as though somebody may be developing some other, um, you know, bad behavior because of all the trauma that, you know, you right. built up over the years in this job. And, you know, you look at the studies that are out there, uh, police officers are more likely to be involved in um, maybe alcohol abuse. Uh, they could have situations at home uh, where their uh, families get, you know, separated. It's a hard job. Yeah, you work definitely. long hours, miss a lot of birthdays, miss a lot of holidays. Are they paid enough? Uh, you know, are they paid enough? Uh, Probably not. Um, but, you know, what do you, most of the people who do this work, they don't do it for the money. You know what right. I mean? You can earn a living, uh, you can earn a good living uh, doing the work. Uh, you're not going to get rich doing it. Uh, it's a government job. Um, but the other piece to um, their mental health is, you know, you, you provide those services, but you also you know, try and get these officers out, to get out here and exercise. Right. You know what I mean? And we do have a number of things. We have road races and all kinds of activities. We keep our gym open. We have a nice place where they can swim over there, lift weights, run on the treadmill, play right. basketball. Uh, and we try to encourage them to go out there. And I, I was riding my bike uh, this weekend. I came across a couple of my officers out on a detail. And they're like, what are you, preparing for a road race? I was like, no, I'm, I'm relieving stress. <laughs> yeah, that's why I run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. What else, Patrick? Any, I mean, we could talk to you all day, but of course you have other things to do. But um, that was great. I think it was great. No, I, listen, I appreciate it. I yeah. mean, it's, uh, it's a hard job. Thank you so much for yes, having me. I appreciate you. it. Yeah, thank you. So that was our interview with uh, Chief Newsham. Yes. What'd you think? I thought he was great. Don't don't you think he's? I think he's always really good. Honestly, media wise. Yeah. Listen, he he was very um, very candid, very open. Um, I mean, listen, we you know we didn't. This wasn't a journalistic interview, and 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 we knew that going in. It was more of a conversation about policing and some of the issues that have come up in our podcast and some of the challenges and uh, things that he's he goes through. And some of, uh, it was fascinating to find out he has a law degree. Uh, from the from from Maryland, but I'm curious what you think because we did make so much of the ATV, the last ATV incident, which Fox Five got the video where they they closed off the streets. Like, what did you? What was your take on his? Uh, I think you know his his comment and and I'm paraphrasing here was was basically you know he believes they're they've reduced the 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 number of individuals at any one time has reduced and maybe the number of incidents. But he also he admitted it's a very very frustrating scenario for citizens to see these ATVs ride up and down. I mean, he explained why they don't go after him. Uh, Do you agree with that though? Because we kind of talked about like I don't understand. Well, I don't. We'd have to really do some research on the number uh, of incidents. Um, They seem a little bit more infrequent. Uh, Maybe they're just not popping up on social media as much as they used to. but listen, it sounded like it's 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 somewhat of a sound policy. You know, I really can't comment specifically on the poli- uh, the, the the policy of that because it's not it's not for me to, to to say. I do think though that when citizens don't see police engaging in that type of behavior or trying to stop that type of behavior, I, I'm sure it's frustrating. He admitted that. Um, but no, we talked about you know uh, you know. Policing a city of DC size with, uh, yeah. in addition, twenty-one million tourists, plus with the you know, with, with with terrorism worries and 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 the number of police, and we asked if police should be paid uh, more. And listen, I think he was very very open. Um, and you know, it'll be interesting to see what what everyone thinks. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, send us your comments and your questions. Uh, you can find me at Patrick GM Fox Five DC. And uh, where can they find you? Perfect. It's at Hey Frage on Twitter. But then the Facebook page where we'll have the conversation is the Polini Perspective. So join that group on Facebook. People can leave their thoughts and comments and uh, we'll kind of address some of those next week. And then next week we'll be back to our uh, stupid shenanigans. See you then.